The problem is that Coors beer, you take that east of Texas, and that's uh, a good lake. Well, I got a few friends and me, uh, 400 cases. New car, I got to have a new car to block for the truck, you know. Speedy car. Speedier than that. we're dealing with here is a complete lack of respect for the law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intermillennium Media Project podcast, the IMMP, for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. This is Peyton Station calling to Gigantor. Gigantor, do you read me? Ah, you're coming in loud and clear, 10-4. <laughs> I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And it's still road trip season. Still in the middle of the summer. Absolutely. We kicked off last time with one of my favorite car movies, The Gumball Rally. So we're jumping ahead a year from 1976 to 1977 for another very popular car and highway oriented movie yeah this movie feels similar but distinctly different energy in it at the same time it sounds kind of silly when i say it like that but there's something about like i feel like i understand the concept of car movie by watching these two things as close to each other as we did but these are very different car movies in some senses yes in in the gumball rally as much as i like it the characters are accessories for the car in many ways. Yes. Each, each set of characters. In this movie, the vehicles are accessories for the characters. But they're very, very important accessories. Very important. Because this movie... This movie is about, in some ways, a, a race of a different kind. And this was an incredibly popular movie. Aha. Uh-huh. This was the second highest grossing movie of 1977. Oh my goodness. Just behind a movie called Star Wars. Well, considerably behind a movie called Star Wars. And a little bit ahead of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Saturday Night Fever. Oh. oh. But it was the, the second highest gross of that year. Oh my goodness. And I usually, we usually don't look at things like box office grosses. But I, I mentioned that just to give you a sense of... How important this was in sort of the pop culture zeitgeist. As much oxygen as Star Wars used up, there was some left over for Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. Which is interesting because I hadn't heard of this movie before this, really. Oh, this really? Was absolutely a blind spot for me. Oh, that's always fun. And I'm surprised because it had some big names and it had some some of that styling I was describing that like I, un- I, th- I thought I'd seen elsewhere in terms of the way they, they focus on the vehicles and the way the characters kind of present themselves. It's, it, it is a story about a, a local legend kind of person to begin with, and that sets up a framework. Very much. And, and comparing it to the Gumball Rally, this is another movie that was directed by someone whose career was most prominent as that of a stuntman. Mm-hmm. So again, it was Hal Needham, who went on to direct a number of movies, 
but he came from that stunt and, and stunt driving world. And you can see how that fuels so much that's happening in this movie, not just in terms of the stunts. There's not as much stunt driving in this movie compared to the Gumball Rally, not as much by far, but just in terms of the way vehicles and motion are filmed, I think it's got that same sensibility that one develops after a lot of experience as a a stunt person. It's a movie with a lot of framing and a lot of environmental storytelling it it tells a lot of stuff but it does a lot of its action and scenes with a oh i see that coming oh they're gonna do a thing they did a thing (laughs) ah someone else tried to they can't do the thing yeah a lot of its its stunts are telegraphed absolutely but you mentioned the cast it's important to start there because that's a big part of what made this so popular this is uh it featured burt reynolds Mm -hmm. as the bandit and Sally Field, as the woman who gets kind of mixed up in what's happening, and starring Jerry Reed as the snowman, the truck driver. Yes. Now, some people might argue with me about how important Jerry Reed is to this movie. But I think he is just so incredibly pivotal to this movie for a couple of reasons. Absolutely. He is the one bringing the... The equivalent of the ring to its equivalent of Mordor, <laughs> while everyone else in the Fellowship, also known as as the Bandit and Sally Field, runs circles around everybody else to distract from the fact that he's getting there. That's their entire purpose. Now, it's very much, of course, it's a it's a Burt Reynolds starring vehicle, and also Sally Field as I don't even remember the character's name, but she was given the CB handle Frog early on, and that's how she's referred to it through much of the movie. Okay, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, they're on screen most of the time. Burt Reynolds, the uh, million watt smile, super charm. He's going to sell a movie. He's going to sell a lot of movie tickets just for being in the movie, especially in that mid to late 70s era. But the reason I like to point out how important Jerry Reed is, is not just because of the role he plays. The bandit's brother-in-law, the snowman who's driving the truck, and we'll explain what they're driving in a moment if you haven't seen the movie. But Jerry Reed sings the two super important songs on the soundtrack to this movie. Oh, that was him. He is a country singer, and he sang Eastbound and Down, which is the song everybody knows from this movie, which is a great song, and it summarizes the story of this movie. It tells this little fable this in, in musical form. But he also sings the song about the bandit at the beginning of this movie, which not as many people know, but which is so important, if you ask me, because it establishes the bandit as this legendary character Mm -hmm. and how he is known far and wide, and he has had all these exploits, and he has all these skills, and he's always staying one step ahead of uh, the lawmen. And it gives, that is what gives this story context. It makes this story one of who knows how many stories there are about Bandit and his exploits. It makes Bandit a trickster character, a coyote character, about whom there are as many stories as you can imagine. Exactly. Where do I recognize this guy from? Jerry Reed? I don't know. There's, some, uh, his, there's something about his face, but I'm like, I can't picture him. You're not... Yeah, you know, the biggest country music fan, so I don't know that it's from no. 70s country music. 
Wait a minute. Okay, I'm checking IMDb. He was in an episode of Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo? Yes. Uh, um, let me check this. He was in an episode of Scooby-Doo Movies. As himself. <laughs> episode The Phantom of the Country Music Hall. I must recognize him from this. That's I've great. seen enough old Scooby-Doo. <laughs> so what was it you recognized? Was it his voice? I think or it was, was it? It's something about the way he was drawn or something. Characterization oh. of him with the big <laughs> cheeks and the jaw and this happy smile and this energy. He was it, so exaggerated in the art for Scooby-Doo that... It just reminded me of that. It's like, <laughs> I know this guy from something. And I'm realizing, you know what he does? He spends most of the entire movie here with a dog. It's going <laughs> to click in my mind. Yes, you're right. He brings his dog along. Yes. R- so, riding along in the cab of the truck for the whole thing. So I'm like, where's this guy? Why do I recognize him and a dog? I'm having this entire like time, the entire film. <laughs> Scooby-Doo is so educational. Absolutely. Before we talk too much about this character, there are some things about the the setting and iconography that we see in this film that I think need to be acknowledged. Right. I think at least it needs to be acknowledged that it's a, a very Southern setting in the late 1970s, and both from, from cultural references, from the way some characters are portrayed, but also things like Confederate flags on car decals. These did not receive the negative kind of reaction that they would and should today. It was just sort of part of the landscape at the time. And you saw them not just in movies like this. They were all over TV and things like the Dukes of Hazard. But it's hard to watch it today without at least noticing and acknowledging that. Absolutely. And with that kind of acknowledged and noted as part of this, they do a great job in the other parts of this with things like that song and the rest of the presentation as to making this character almost a Robin Hood figure. There's a very clear similarity between the uh, bandit song that gets sung that you were pointing out before and the Robin Hood and Little John in the forest in like Disney's Robin Hood. They depict these at this as this same kind of local mythological figure character. Yes, the way he is set up in that song as this kind of character it makes me imagine some little kids saying, hey, Grandpa, tell us a story. Okay, what do you want to hear? Oh, tell us another story about Bandit. Okay, okay. Did I ever tell you about the time Bandit had to get a truckload of Coors from Texarkana to uh, Atlanta? No, but what's so hard about that? Well, it wasn't legal to bring Coors from Texarkana to Atlanta and what? he only had 28 hours to do it. Why wasn't it legal? <laughs> because of something called preservatives that Coors didn't have. And that was a big selling point. So, that's the setup for this film. He has been bet a ridiculously large sum of money to go get this beer legally across state lines to a party. <laughs> as the as the Eastbound and Down song puts it there, folks are thirsty in Atlanta and there's beer in Texarkana. Mm-hmm. So he has got 28 hours to get this truckload of Coors to Atlanta where he is going to get $80,000 from Big Enos, who's a <laughs> Wait, wealthy guy having a party Big Enos and his ki- and his son 
who dresses in a smaller version of the exact same outfit. Yeah, Big Enos and Little Enos. Little Enos played by Paul Williams. Who who absolutely look like they're supposed to be Bond villains, <laughs> but that they got lost and decided not to leave. <laughs> they're like, you know what? We were gonna build a death laser, but I'd rather throw a, a, a demolition derby here. We've still got the costumes, but we can do that here. <laughs> sure. And, you know, Big Enos is portrayed as kind of the the slick, fast-talking, my-money-is-most-important-thing-in-the-world kind of guy uh, who shows off a lot, who Bandit doesn't necessarily want to do business with, but yeah, he'll do a job for him and take some money. Meanwhile, Lil Enos is shown as being the... Uh the stickler and the the counter and the person who's trying to kind of manage the business side of things a little bit more. Right. Big Enos never touches money. He just tells Little Enos to pay people. And Little Enos grumbles at every $100 bill he peels off of their giant stack of money. <laughs> and from the very beginning, even though the song portrays Bandit as a truck driver, and he is a truck driver, we see him in a, uh, a big rig race truck rodeo early in the movie. He sees right away that this is not a one-man job just driving a truck to Arctex Arcana and back because they're going to have to drive real fast. So he recruits his brother-in-law, Cletus, a.k.a. Snowman, played by Jerry Reed, to as, drive the truck. As our reluctant, but only for a tiny moment, and then absolutely not reluctant, <laughs> truck driver. But what does that mean Bandit's doing this entire time? Well, as he puts it to, uh, to Big Enos, as he's uh, paying out the front money, gonna need a speedy car to run Rabbit. Mm -hmm. Well, speedier than that. Speedier than that. So Bandit is driving a Trans Am to flush out police so they don't stop and search or ticket the truck hauling all this illegal beer. This is a zooped up Trans Am with large front painting, so it's noticeable, and a CB radio installed. Yes, this was one of those highway trucker CB culture type movies that were very popular in the 70s. It was mm -hmm. another part of its popularity and an another part of its influence, too. And that, that Trans Am that he drove, that T-top Trans Am, became really, really popular for a few years, in large part because of this movie. Following this movie was the first time that that Trans Am outsold the Camaro, which is another car built on the same platform. Oh my goodness. Camaro was so much more popular. The Trans Am was kind of a second cousin to it, but suddenly it was a movie star and it became really popular. And this was definitely a, a CB radio focused movie in that sense. Because he uses that radio, and they're talking back and forth constantly. That's a major part of how the interactions in this film go. So much of the dialogue is over the radio. Mm-hmm. And you would think that it's okay, they just need to drive real fast and avoid police. That's not much of a plot. The plot gets complicated when Bandit comes across a woman in a wedding dress flagging him down and jumping into his car and telling him to drive. Yeah. This is Sally Field, who is later dubbed Frog, 
who is running away from her wedding, about which she had some serious second thoughts. And possibly some difficult and slightly coerced first thoughts from some of the interaction. (laughs) And not long after that, we see come upon the the car that she had been driving with the just married uh, sign painted on the back. Sheriff Buford T. Justice and his son. And his son was the groom-to-be. Yep. And Sheriff Buford T. Justice, a.k.a. the Smokey, is played by Jackie Gleason. And he really does play a, an excellent villain and counterpoint role. He is such a villain. He's a... He, it's Jackie Gleason. He's known for being an over-the-top comic actor. In this role, he's over-the-top and funny partly because he's always furious at someone or something. But even with all the comedy, there is definitely this hint of danger that he is really capable of nasty stuff. Yeah. He's not a bumbling buffoon sort of comic lawman character. He's a awful person and dangerous who becomes comic because of how flustered he gets when the People he's after are always one step ahead of him. He's an awful guy who has gained a little bit of power and now wields it wildly in any direction he can for what he thinks is his own benefit and is likely to eventually become his own destruction at this rate. And Mike Henry would be easy to overlook in the role of Junior Justice, his son. But he does add a lot because he is this, at first glance, he's handsome. But he's really this kind of big, hulking, incredibly childlike buffoon. Totally in his father's shadow, totally cowed by his father. It's very much an early instance of the the large adult son archetype. He is very much Frankenstein's monster early on in creation, where he has got this large commanding presence and this wide-eyed wonder to the world, <laughs> yes. and has a... And has an overly focused progenitor here kind of dictating life in a negative way to him. (laughs) Yes. Huh. So the rest of the movie is is Smokey and Frog in the Trans Am and Cletus in this uh, truck full of Coors still trying to make it to Atlanta on time, being pursued by Buford T. Justice across the entire South. Yeah, the trip to go get the cores itself is not too bad, although we do see just how reckless Bandit is with how they pick up and load this cores from this depot. Yes, the uh, the distributor in Texarkana, there's nobody there and it's locked. So they just break in and start driving a forklift around, even if they don't know how. But they get things loaded up and they uh, apparently leave the money on the counter. And then the, the, the race is off and the frog is picked up. And this is where the structure really comes in. Because once that's there, in a similar way to how Gumball Rally could bounce between car to car on the road, this movie will bounce from setup and situation to how does Bandit deal with it, and then how does Smokey deal with it. It's, you know, oh, we're in the chase again, we've gotten into a new area, and of course, not only is this police officer from the Texarkana region following us, but the local police are on us. And it will be an inevitable collision, literally in most cases, of a problem, like a bridge is out. Bandit can jump it. 
And even the officers that are trying to actually stop a bandit and might succeed are going to run into problems with this bumbling and angry other officer completely outside of his district, racing his way along in an increasingly broken down car. And they will inevitably fail to handle the same task and it will keep going. And you make a really good point about the similarity in structure that you can see in this to the Gumball Rally, it being another road movie. But we've got the law enforcement officer who's trying to catch up with them as opposed to intercept them from advance like uh, the detective in Gumball Rally. But he does have to deal with these local law enforcement organizations along the way, occasionally coordinating with them, more often being at cross purposes with them and cursing them out a blue streak. But we see that we see all of these jurisdictions, sheriff's departments and police departments trying to stop bandit and snowman and failing comically with lots of car wrecks and cars being knocked into lagoons and all kinds of things. There's something extremely playful about how this all goes down, even though it is wild car crashes and, as you described, blue streaks of (laughs) swearing and everything else. There's something where these these little vignettes of moments as they go along, strung one after another. And this is me. Anyone who's listened to the podcast knows I like uh, comparing stuff to games. And I immediately started to try to figure out is like, what RPG would this be? Oh, could I throw some rules onto like Rally Man or or uh, you know Heat or like a racing game? And I realized by the end, I could play this game out, this movie out as a game with a deck of playing cards in the best way, because there is a suit of cards for how well Smokey is doing, how well this you know you know Justice is running through uh you know guns never actually but close to a blazing style wise there is a you play another card from a different suit for how the current local police are doing and smoky just uh, and smoky's card is in play the police's card is in play and all bandit has to do is take his other two suits one of them is stunt driving and the other is cb radio and play a combination of those two higher than both <laughs> as long as he can do it he keeps getting away and it's it's as simple as that, and it works perfectly, because he will out-stunt drive them one moment, and the next moment, he'll pull up the radio, and there'll be someone else in the area. Someone else with a handle in this wide network, who will immediately say, oh, hey, bandit, oh, yeah, I owe you one, or you'll owe me one, and they do something to help make it. They clear a path, they drive a, their own decoy for the decoy, they tell him about an exit that they that no one else but the locals would use and it helps him get away and this is how each of these play out but it's perfectly done this is why that song about the bandit at the beginning of the movie is so crucial it makes all of that believable Mm -hmm. the bandit is known far and wide and beloved of the normal country folk and they are happy to get in the way of the law who's trying to keep bandit down and as he describes it to sally field's character about what he does oh he kind of drives around place to place doing what he does best which is showing off but he has he's gained this tremendous capital of popularity and affection from every walk of life truckers 
people who run Greasy Spoon Diners, the ladies with the mobile bordello who are happy to keep the local law enforcement uh, busy for a little while so Bandit could get through their jurisdiction. Just all sorts of things. And one of my favorite moments was the pair of uh, people in the funeral and in the hearse saying, (laughs) hey man, I think I recognize that. Pull up, hey! Now we can run distraction, and they guide an entire funeral procession of cars that has a bunch of other CB radio people adding on into the line to make it longer, and they just block traffic for a while. And it's, it's those little moments are so perfect. And the wow, he must have had a lot of friends. Line is this perfect example of how this little underground network is running, even when even though the the officers have CB radios in their cars. They can hear this happening. It's all quick talking code, exchanging favors. There's also something very, this is going to sound weird. We've got a movie, uh, mostly produced by a stuntman that highly involves one very skilled person with legendary talent in a community. And there is an underground network of people using similar talents and similar abilities communicating via extreme amounts of code with each other as they do their things amongst the general populace and avoiding the local law enforcement. Is Smokey and the Bandit truck driver John Wick? (laughs) I'll point out you raised something very similar for Gumball Rally. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and you're right. It has this secret society angle to it. This this culture under the culture. People who, if you know how to make contact and how to communicate, it's an entire separate society in parallel with the society that people like Buford T. Justice have taken it upon themselves to police. And and the way this presents that, I can see how that then followed through popular culture afterwards for so long, because a decade later one of my favorite films of all time, which is also involving a truck driver, Big Trouble in Little China, still has the element of beginning and ending with his CB radio calls. But in his, a decade later, it's not getting responded to. That sets up who he is in a character of him. But at the same time, that wouldn't be a thing you could reference that clearly to establish a setting and establish a character. Without things like this, putting the CB radio stuff in the zeitgeist. Yes, the kind of character that uh, Jack Burton is in Big Trouble in Little China, that is a trope that is established by those 70s movies like Smokey and the Bandit, like the movie adaptation of the song Convoy, things like that, that became such a recognizable trope, you could play weird and interesting games with it when it comes time for something like Big Trouble in Little China. And so much of this, so much of the running time of this movie really is taken up with car stunts, with cars crashing mm-hmm. into each other. And you mentioned the the condition of Sheriff Justice's car. We get to see that car be dismantled piece by piece by all of the wrecks or all the accidents that he gets into in attempting to pursue Bandit. He gets Doors knocked off and mirrors knocked off at one point. Paint the, scraped. The entire roof of the car is scraped oh, off yes. and he's driving with uh, with no roof for the rest of the movie. And that becomes a marker of how far he's willing to go 
and how far outside his jurisdiction he's willing to go to catch Bandit. And it becomes a mirror of how increasingly unhinged, because it's not just his car that's falling apart. He is is falling apart as well. He is absolutely crumbling by the end of this. And I'm amazed that we don't see the car or him just completely collapse. And at the beginning of this chase, he really doesn't care about Bandit. He's heard of Bandit once he recognizes who uh, who they're talking about. But he is chasing after Sally Field mm-hmm. because she's the one who ran out on the wedding to his son. And Sheriff Justice seems much more disturbed by that than Junior does. Yeah. Junior doesn't look happy, but... Sheriff Justice has taken it as this personal insult and failure to recognize his authority and his importance. It's he doesn't really care very much about his son. It's the insult to him and his position that she has imposed by running away. That's why it becomes this vendetta. As time goes on, the more successful bandit is at evading and humiliating Sheriff Justice the more it becomes about catching Bandit. You get this idea of Junior might have had interest in Sally Field's character in Frog. Like, they might have actually gotten along, but in some ways she ran because of how annoying and awful his dad was. I wouldn't be surprised. Because, you know, Buford T. Justice here is talking about, like, I paid $50 to gussy up the town. <laughs> That's a lot of, like, get paid only... $50. Okay. Yeah. A, he's cheap. And B, that's a small town. That's a small town. She didn't necessarily want to be stuck. And there. it also says something that he's complaining about that, but he's able to send like a pickup truck full of, I think, six people with tire irons could go check the status of the van that she escaped <laughs> in. He is running his place. I thought that that was his people from. Because they report back to him, I thought. Oh, that's interesting. I thought that that was, they were just a bunch of young hoods who wanted to strip the car. Oh. And he essentially intimidated them into staying right there. I'll have somebody come along to pick you up and you tell me everything you know about whether there was a girl here and what car she got into and all that. But I don't think they were were his people. I thought they were his goons, which told me something about what I thought his character was early. No, I think that they, I don't think they were, but. He was willing and able to intimidate them into being useful to him. That was more important to him than arresting them for trying to strip this car. Ah. But either way, it sets him up as a kind of person in that sense early on. And so watching him kind of repeatedly crash his high horse into into objects (laughs) until he and his horse are not doing so good is part of the the fun of this and watching it it degrade but also watching bandit keep keep finding narrower margins to succeed his chances of escaping keep getting harder to get harder to do it keeps getting tighter and as bandit gets more wrapped up in pulling away this increasing amount of uh police presence on them and as he and frogs start having their own interactions more, the truck gets a little left behind and a left, left vulnerable until the end. And that becomes a risky part of it. It's like, how long have you been away from the truck? Like, get back to your post in that sense. 
And it's interesting in some ways, the fact that they're being pursued by, by Sheriff justice and him riling up every local law enforcement jurisdiction that he, they pass through that actually helps snowman and bandit a bit because mm-hmm. it creates so much distraction. It's exactly what bandit's job as rabbit was, which is to flush out local law enforcement and distract them. So they don't notice this truck hauling through their, uh, their jurisdiction at 90 miles an hour. They somehow obtained a second rabbit. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned uh, Sally Field's character again, Frog. It's, it's definitely worth acknowledging that this is actually more of a character than she might have been in a lot of movies of the time. I think both thanks to Sally Field's performance, but also in the writing, she's given more personality. She's given more motivation. She's able to hold her own in conversation and in in dealing with these weird situations with Bandit and with Snowman. And I think that makes the movie that much richer. I definitely get the sense that, well, she is somebody who, she wants an interesting life. And she's a dancer, and she has danced on Broadway with, like, one role in the chorus. But mostly she's jumping around from one chorus line job to another. And I think it was realizing she didn't want to be stuck in small town Texas for her life. Yeah. That led her to leave. And you get a sense of her interest in adventure, her interest in excitement, her interest in, and her interest in a life that's going to bring her lots of different places. So falling in with Bandit just because he's the first guy to come along when the car she was running away from the wedding inn conked out was perfect. And they have personalities that can be in sync she's introduced and people might think immediately that she's going to be the damsel in distress but she's really the daring and determined dancer in dire straits and occasionally a driver's seat yeah and there's a time or two when she helps save bandit by noticing something and having the car ready Mm -hmm. and they do a great job of early on bandit is shown to be upstanding enough and true to his word enough that he pulls over to a stop that he knows he can get food but says there's a there's a bus stop right there you can get away i've gotten you where you need to go and it's her noticing the noticing justice come in and gets the car ready and is there to help getaway drive bandit yeah he doesn't want to presume he doesn't want to presume that she wants to go on with him he doesn't necessarily want her to go on with him because she is a distraction and there is danger involved in what he's doing. And yet he seems very happy and welcoming when she makes the decision that she's going to keep traveling with him. Absolutely. And he, and he lights up and kind of has a, Oh, you're interested in when she wants to have a handle when she wants to have <laughs> a part. when she's like, yeah, she, he, he's amused and a little bothered when she's just shoved herself into his environment, getting in his car and such. But once she actually shows, no, she's listening, talking, she's working with, and she's interested, he can play with that. It's like, oh, yeah, I can, well, we can figure out you how to handle, (laughs) like, things like that. There's this bit of respect going on between them as they learn more about each other. Yes, and you get the impression he's the kind of guy who probably has a sweetheart in every town he's ever passed through. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. But it's not the same relationship that we see building under these circumstances with frog with Carrie. (laughs) Yeah. 
plenty of those sweethearts help him out on the road as there's some of the CB radio people he calls in. Yes. So this is a movie that it loomed large for a couple of years in pop culture and in, in, in the, my friend group and such some, some because they, they liked the jokes and they liked Burt Reynolds, some because they liked the titillation of the, the off-screen romantic tryst that Carrie uh, Frog and, uh, uh, and uh, Bandit eventually have towards the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And some because they just liked that Trans Am. I knew one guy who just was obsessed with Trans Ams, and it was mostly because of this movie. They do a good job of showing off that car. <laughs> but it, it's definitely, it's one of these movies that, it's at the time, it didn't take very long for it to start to seem very dated. Mm. I can absolutely imagine that. And it, for all its positives, it is a movie that is, in its ways, formulaic. Once it gets itself established, once they're on their way back, you can kind of put as many scenes of different escapes and things. You could stretch out or shorten the story of the adventure back with the truck of full of cores as much as you need. Even if it seems like there's too much to have been done in that 28 hours, they can add it in. You can just keep doing it. True. You could expand this story. And there's also the wide open possibility of all the other potential stories about Bandit. In fact, the movie ends kicking off another one where he actually- Just like Gumball <laughs> Rally. Yeah. It's the, we got to the destination and you know what happens? The exact same thing is implied to go next because suddenly, hey, can you go get us some New England clam chowder <laughs> and bring it back to go with this you got, course? You got 18 hours to do it. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know what? Out of respect. Tease- <laughs> he's justice about the fact that I'm still going to be on the road and it's implied they keep on running away. That's the entire setup of the ending. It's like, that's, that says something about the way the story is presented. That means I can imagine it is wonderfully fresh and fun because it's open. But if it's got some elements that are so specific to its time period, that becomes dated as well when it can stretch and shrink as much as it needs. Now, I saw this movie a couple of times on HBO shortly after it was released, so I was watching it maybe in 78 or so. Did they edit anything down for that? I don't know that they did from HBO. Okay. They tended to, they would pan and scan it for TV screens, but I don't think they edited it for content at all. And I mostly saw it because my dad was a huge Jackie Gleason fan. He really liked Jackie Gleason. Ah. And he got such a laugh out of Jackie Gleason's character in this movie. <laughs> and I remember that. I remember enjoying the movie in part because I was enjoying it with my dad. Watching it again, Jackie Gleason's character is the most unpleasant and unwatchable part of the movie. He's integral to the story. You can't do without him. But just the way he's portrayed, what the scenes are like when he's on screen, it's just it's just not pleasant fun to watch it's not funny enough to be worth having to watch this character and yet the rest of the movie which i didn't remember as well was so much more fun that i had remembered or had expected yeah it's i i can't i can imagine appreciating the acting chops that it takes 
but it takes the acting chops to play a character that is as greasy and apparently punchable <laughs> as this guy is. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a very good performance. Oh, absolutely. And, and it can be very funny and entertaining. And it's just... I can't imagine liking yeah. the character. I can imagine yeah. liking the performance, but yes. not liking the character. Right. And it must have been a fun role for Gleason to play, too, because he got to be completely over the top. Usually I save this until we're talking about it later, but it also must have been something he loved because he's the only one that stuck through all of the sequels completely. That is true. Because this movie kept going, as yeah. it implies. Yeah. They did a Smokey and the Bandit 2, which is very much like Smokey and the Bandit, but Smokey and the Bandit 3 just has him. <laughs> the only person still in it is Jackie Gleason's character. Kind of also weirdly makes it the, I think that also makes Smokey and the Bandit 3 possibly the Tokyo Drift, the Smokey and the Bandit franchise, because it does not have the main character who's known for driving cars, everyone expects. It follows a side character entirely with new main characters, and there's a cameo at the end, which is weird to say. That reminds me, you started talking about a playing card based RPG when we were driving home from seeing the latest Fast and Furious movie. There That's is, part of the same sort of system. There I'm is thinking. something to There's be done something there. we can build here. Car-based action RPG. Oh, yeah. Using cards. But yeah. yeah, maybe it is time to start talking about our final questions. I think so. And the first is, it's a movie, screen or no screen? <sighs> this is a... Uh, it's a screen, but I'm going to say it, it's not a... It's, a, it's once again not a rapt attention screen, in my opinion, and it's a, it's, it's a go up and get popcorn, I don't think you missed much kind of screen in that sense. It'll be fun, it'll be the thing you're watching for the evening, but I don't feel like you're, you're going to be on the edge of your seat the entire time. But maybe this is a subcategory, the casual screen. Casual screen. This is a casual screen. It has gone, kind of like Gumball Rally, it has gone from being a contemporary movie to being dated, and now it plays pretty well as a period piece. Yeah. Hey. Hey, you. Listener. With the two baskets of laundry, right? You want something to watch while folding? That's this. A <laughs> Good call. Casual, <laughs> casual screen. That's what these are for. So now that we've got that established, it's both a screen, but, but a, a casual screen mm -hmm. from, from both of us. Yeah, there's the question of revive, reboot, or rest in peace. <sighs> and as you pointed out, there were sequels to this. There were sequels. There were two more movies. And there was a short-lived TV reboot. What? In like the 90s at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that lasted more than an episode or two. It was part of, mm. I forget which cable channel had this where it was kind of an anthology every week it would be an installment of a different uh series and and those kind of anthologies never really took off and i don't know that a 90s revival of a reboot of smoky and the bandit would necessarily work anyway okay yeah so it was four made for tv spin-off films made in 1994 for universal television's action pack starring brian bloom playing a younger version of bandit so it was the same character, other stories plucked from his legend, like kind of uh, that, like it's we were a young earlier. Indiana Jonesing. <laughs> oh, this was supposed to take place prior to yes. Smokey and the Bandit, 
And yet they had updated it in time. So like he had a cell phone instead of a CB radio and things like that. And as of October, 2020, there was a Smokey and the Bandit TV series being revealed as in development. Huh? Huh? I, I could see that working. You would have to have a really, really good cast, but I could see it working updated appropriately given good enough stories, good enough writers. The idea of a modern highway, chaotic, good million dollar smile, uh, Robin hood sort of character on the highways. I could see that working. I absolutely can as well. Part of me says that I don't know if you said it then. You said it like during that time. Do you make it modern and just slide a myth forward and back in time? At which point, at what point does your show just become a a bandit themed leverage in trucks? (laughs) But also, I'm not against the concept of leverage in trucks. Get bandit a tech guy who can run better laptop stuff and see what we can do here there's options but i'm not sure there's potential but at the same time being so primordial in some weird way makes it easy to any tweaks you make feels like you drift into a different story too swiftly yeah it'd be easier to shoot if it's set in the present day it would be easier to develop stories if it was set in the 70s without the issues of ubiquitous tracking and security cameras and everything else that would make life hard for a character like Bandit in the 21st century. Exactly. So I am, I don't need sequels necessarily. And it's hard to say, given the fact that we're talking about a character who's any story about him is just going to be another plucked from this long-running legend. It does blur the line between revival and reboot because anything would, in theory, be a revival because you're just telling more stories about the same character. Absolutely. There is one scene I, for some reason, thought there would be something like this in this, and yeah. I was amazed there never was. But in some ways, the fact that his, his car was not iconic until after the movie came out and was not a common or widely available car. I kind of love the idea, though, that they could have done a story in which you get a bunch of officers knowing he's going to come around the bend. He's driving a this model car. And suddenly, all of these cars of the exact same model come <laughs> screaming around the corner because the CB radio crew found everybody they know that's got one of those. Yeah, I mean... To do an I am Spartacus (laughs) moment, who's Bandit. I kind of expected it, and they never did. I kind of hope something else would try doing that scene. It sounds awesome. It looks awesome in my imagination. That would be a cool scene for a later story. Exactly. You know, it wasn't hard to find a Trans Am to buy in 1976, but you just weren't going to find as many people who had bought them as you would have in late 77 through 79. Right. So the idea of if you do a later story, there's fun you can have <laughs> with his legend growing even more. But true. There's difference. That's true. Yeah. And 
There is something to be said for telling stories about before he was as well-known. And here are some of the exploits that made him so many friends all over the South. Oh, yeah. You could have fun, interesting things of him having a mission that sends him up to Seattle. You got to leave your area. You're running into CB areas where you don't have that same pool of connections. You're kind of going back out to a place where you're unknown and trying to make something work. Who knows? So I would say that I am not looking for a revival or a reboot, but I would consider watching if I saw a trailer or heard that it was in the, that it was in production. I heard who was in the cast and my reaction was, yes, Mm -hmm. there is somebody who can play bandit. In the 2020s. Absolutely. But it would have to be that kind of perfect casting to be worth redoing. Do you have the right people to be able to shoot this shot? That's important on this. <laughs> it's not really worth it otherwise. So this is a rest in peace unless you can really make that work. In which case, it sounds like this is a revival at that point. Yeah. And listeners, let us know. Do you have any ideas as to who should play Bandit? If they were to make this again or, or make their revival or reboot, Absolutely. I'd love to hear some ideas. I mm-hmm. don't know who I would say. I'm not sure either. There's some younger actors I can imagine if their career goes in the right direction later. There are some actors I would have said would be perfect a couple of years ago, but they're not quite the same anymore and they've gotten themselves into different roles that they wouldn't want to leave. Yeah. Well, I hope you found this a fun continuation of uh, the summer road trip season. It was fun watching this again and it was fun showing it to you. Absolutely. And I appreciated getting to do this and the road trip theme was an excellent time. So yeah. Well, we will be back in a couple of weeks and it will still be summer. Ah. So in the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Well, you can find me, uh, go to buymatthewporter.com. That's where you will find links to whatever I'm doing online. And that includes my Mastodon account, and that also includes my YouTube channel where I review movies and movie theater visits. Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as itemcrafting most places, such as itemcrafting.com, itemcrafting.omg.lol, and as itemcrafting on Mastodon, kind.social. And for the podcast itself, if you want more of the Intermillennium Media Project, if you go to immproject.com, you'll find all of our back episodes, and you'll find a link to our YouTube page. Uh, and a link to our Patreon, where you can also get more audio content. If you want to support the IMMP, you've got that Patreon where you can subscribe. You've also got a shop if you like t-shirts and coffee mugs and fun things like that. And if you want to contact the IMMP, you can use the contact page there at immproject.com, or you can send us honest-to-goodness physical mail through the U.S. Postal Service at P.O. Box 271-167, Littleton, Colorado 80127. Thank you very much for listening. We're glad you joined us. We hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we will be back with more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. This is the IMMP 1010.